How many of you like to fish? How many of you are fishermen for sport or for fun? A few people? Not too many. How many of you have tried to get, if you're like, you're from Canada, right? So, uh, like the U.S., when you want to go fishing, when I was a kid anyway, which granted was like decades ago, uh, when you were under 14, a fishing license was free. And when you were over 14, it was like maybe $20 to go fishing. And my grandmother used to like to fish all the time. And uh, so we would go out, we'd go, uh, when we were visiting my, my grandparents, we'd go out on this lake that they had a uh, boat on, and we'd fish. And it was, to be honest with you, it was a little bit boring. You'd just sit in the boat, throw the line over the edge, and wait. And uh, it's funny, though, as you become an adult, what, what is boring to a kid becomes relaxing as an adult, right? And... Uh, but then this movie came out called A River Runs Through It. And I don't know if you've seen it or not, but the movie has all these several scenes in it of fly fishing. And fly fishing is a total different type of fishing. It's the type they, they, they whip it back and forth and, and the, you know, the fly, which is like this little tide thing that's supposed to look like an insect. You lay it out on the water. And if you ever see this movie, it's very romantic the way they make it look because this, this river's running and there's trees and the sunlight's dappling in and they have it in slow motion. The guy's whipping this thing back and forth and laying it in there. So I decided I was going to learn how to fly fish. And uh, I had a friend of mine in our church that, uh, that knew how, that, that was his hobby. He, he tied flies and, and uh, would take people on tours. So he took me out one time to learn how to fly fish. What a disaster. I put so, I, I decorated the trees all around me with all these flies because I'd be going back and forth and I'd get caught in a tree and then I'd have to cut it and retie it and do it again, get caught in a tree. And it looked like a Christmas tree by the time we were done and all these flies hanging there. And this, the guy that actually tied the ties, he was getting pretty heartbroken because he put a lot of time in these things and I was putting them in the trees. And I think that's, I, and finally I got it into the water. I never caught a single fish fly fishing. And so, I've never fly fished again. And you're wondering, well, what's the point to that? Well, today in the scripture, we have an interesting little story about fishing. And we're in the Gospel of Matthew, those of you who want to follow along. And after going through some kind of deep and, and complicated passages right before this, Matthew has this kind of whimsical passage. And it's the only, only the Gospel of Matthew has this story but like a lot of the scriptures, it's deeper than it looks. And so let's read it, and then we'll talk about it. It says this, After Jesus and his disciples arrived in uh, Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. There's a lot of details in Matthew that you just can't read over. Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From who do the kings of earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, go and take and throw out your line. Take, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and for yours. Again, at first glance, this seems like 
uh, a kind of whimsical passage. And when I was doing some research on it, because I wanted to figure out what this tax was about, most people were arguing as to whether or not Jesus really expected Peter to do this, or was he telling him a joke? Because there's no follow-up that says, and then Peter went out and did it. And that was where, the, where, where most people were discussing, which I thought was very strange, because that's not the point of the passage whatsoever. This tax is kind of an interesting one. It's, it's a very small tax. It's not a tax to the Roman government. It's a tax to the temple. And it's tiny. This tax is maybe only about a euro to us. And so this is one reason why when, the, when the, they ask Peter, why doesn't your teacher pay the temple tasks, when he's asked this, Peter just immediately says, sure he does, because why wouldn't he? You know, it's, 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 paying, it's paying basically a euro. And so Peter just says, yeah, he pays the tax. But Jesus, knowing the conversation Peter just asked, and it's interesting in the scripture, he says, Jesus was the first to speak after Peter goes back to the house. So there had been no discussion about this question that had been asked of Peter. Jesus just knows. And as soon as Peter walks into the house, Jesus asks, and it's probably Peter's house, Jesus asks him this question. He says, what do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. Now, I want you to notice something in this passage. We're going to discuss it later. Notice in this that in the narrative, Matthew always calls Peter, Peter. Right? He goes through here, the two drachma tax. They came to Peter and asked. And then when it says, you know, who they asked Peter. Except the time when Jesus is speaking. Peter isn't called Peter by Jesus. He's called Simon. And we'll look back at, I think, why the reason that is. But the point of this is that this is not a question about taxes. Now, there's going to be a time, and we'll look at the passage where Jesus says to, says to uh, folks when they're asking about taxes, give unto Caesar what is Caesar, give unto God what is God's. And we'll discuss what that whole thing means. But that's not what this is about. Instead, this is more of a question about relationship. This is a question about relationship. And it has some echoes in it of the famous cleansing of the temple where Jesus chases the money changers out of the temple with a zeal that is described in such, in such a way that it feels very personal. For example, the Gospel of John probably gives the most vivid account of this. And you get the sense within it that this is personal to Jesus. When it says this, In the temple courts, he, being Jesus, found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So the way it used to work in the temple is that you had to use special temple money. And you had to buy the animals from the, from the people that sold them in the temple because those were considered already checked out to be clean. So you would have to go and change your money into temple money and then buy the animals. And so you were just getting taxed because you had to pay to have them get the money changed and then you had to buy the animals from the temple. And of course, the price was higher. And it was this big racket, basically, to make money for the temple. It's not that, the, it's not that Jesus is like against giving or tithing, but this kind of extortion he doesn't like. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple area. Both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So there's this personal aspect in it. You see in Jesus, he's, he's more than just 
irritated. He's, he takes this very personally. And he calls about, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? And so, of course, the, the, the point that Jesus is making to Peter here about this two drachma tax is that Peter assumes that Jesus is going to pay the temple tax because Jesus has the same relationship to the temple that anyone else has. And it's an indication here that Peter's not thinking very carefully about who Jesus is. Now remember, Peter was the one that made the proclamation that Jesus was the Messiah not too long ago in the Gospel of Matthew. And it was after, G after Peter says, you are the Messiah, that was the time that Jesus says, and you are Peter. You are the rock upon which this church will be built. And so he changes his name from Simon to Peter after Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. But in this passage, as I was telling you about, in the narrative, in, this, in the narrative as Matthew's writing it, he always refers to him as Peter. But in this point, Jesus doesn't refer to him as Peter. He refers to him as Simon. He goes back to his name. And I think one of the reasons why this is is because Peter, by assuming Jesus' relationship to the temple is the same as everyone else's, when they ask him, does your master pay the tax? And Peter says, yes. And then Jesus calls him on that. When he asks him here, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes, from their own sons or from others? Peter had forgotten kind of who Jesus was. Or at least he hadn't made the connection that as the Messiah, Jesus has a unique relationship with the temple. Because as the Messiah, Jesus is the Lord of the temple. He's not like a supplicant at the temple. He's not like someone like you or me who goes to, if we were back in that time, would go to worship God who is other than them at the temple. He's the Lord of the temple. And his whole point is with Peter, even though it's this little tax, it's, it's not the issue of how much the tax is. The issue that Jesus has with Peter is that Peter doesn't seem to understand that as Messiah, Jesus has a unique relationship with the temple because Peter still hasn't gotten around his head yet what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And so when Simon forgets this relationship or doesn't understand it and says, yeah, Jesus is going to pay the tax just like everyone else, Jesus doesn't call him Peter anymore. He goes back and calls him Messiah, uh, Simon. It's like because Peter kind of forgets, oh, this guy's different. He's different from everyone else. Jesus kind of gently kind of pokes him and says, well, if you forget that I'm Messiah, now I'm going to forget you're Peter and I'm going to call you Simon again. It's just a very subtle little thing that's in the scripture there. But this unique relationship, what is it? What is the unique relationship Jesus has with the temple? Well, it's similar to the unique relationship Jesus has with the Sabbath. And we read a little passage today about Jesus, about the Sabbath, when he says the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The temple was the center of Jewish worship. And the Sabbath day was that designated day for worship. So when it comes to Jesus in worship, Jesus considers the temple to be, in a sense, his property. And that's why he uses this analogy about do the kings collect taxes from their own children or do they collect them from others? Jesus is like, listen, this is mine. I'm the center of it. People don't recognize it, but I'm the very word of God made flesh. This temple is built for the worship essentially of me. And so why would I pay taxes to my own temple, to the, own thing that, the, the very thing that is for the worship of me, is what Jesus is saying to Peter. 
It's like a shopkeeper. Before the days, I know we're in Germany that has like the land of taxes, but uh, in the old days, you know, if a shopkeeper owned a shop, that shopkeeper could take something from his own shop, like his wife, they're at, they're at dinner and she says, we need some eggs. He could go over to the shop, just grab some eggs and bring them home. He's not really accountable to pay his own shop for his own eggs. I know that's different now with taxes. But let's just kind of go back before, before we were, had all these taxes. You know, the shopkeeper wasn't necessarily accountable to himself for what he took from the shop. Because it's his. He owns everything in that shop. If he wants to take it for himself, he can. And this is kind of how Jesus sees the temple. The temple is there to worship, essentially, him. And so he has the right to, to go into it and not expect to have to pay taxes to his own temple. And in the same way, he claims the Sabbath. This exercise, he exercises the right to define what the Sabbath is going to be about. He, he, he gives himself the right to say this is what it means. We read the passage in, in Mark already when he, they're walking through and they're picking grain. And they say, why are they working on the Sabbath? And Jesus has this thing. He says at the end, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In Matthew, he says something very similar. It talked about they're going from a place. He went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they, being the Pharisees, asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they know what their answer is. Their answer is no. It's not lawful. But Jesus says to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and pull it out, lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as, any other, as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted on how they might kill Jesus. So there's two key passages from these two uh, stories here. One is, this one out of Mark, where he says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And then the Matthew passage, which says, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So what's the whole point of this then? Well, the point of this is how Jesus, is, is us understanding how Christ wants us to approach worship. How does Christ want us to approach the concept of worship? And what do you see in these passages? Is worship about keeping a set of laws? Is worship about following on some rigorous rituals in order to please God by our rituals? Because the truth is, as a we have a tendency as human beings to take something that God meant for our own good, for our own well-being, and then to turn it into basically a weapon that we use to lord over others in order to keep our place of, places of authority or of power or it's just sometimes our own selfishness. We'll take something as beautiful as it is to come into the presence of our God to worship and we'll turn it into something that we use against one another. Years ago, I had a friend of mine and he was telling me about this. Uh, Christmas time was coming and he wanted to get for his, he had three boys and he wanted to get this race car track for his boys. And it was going to be something that they were going to share among the three of them. And if any of you are a parent with more than one kid, you already see the disaster that's brewing on that idea. And so because he wanted it to be this big, it was going to be the big present that they were going to share. He bought extra track, he bought extra cars, and he actually had these buildings and stuff that you could put into it. 
And when Christmas time came, it was the last present that they opened. So they had their individual stuff. And then he had this big present, and he kind of split it up. He gave one kid the track, one kid the cars, one kid the buildings, and said, open it up. And they all opened it up. And the idea was they were going to play with this together. And there was going to be peace. There was going to be peace, love, and harmony in the household on Christmas. Uh, you can see it coming, right? These boys began to fight over what they had. And the one with the track used the track as extortion on the one with the, with the car, saying, well, if you want to play with the track, you have to let me choose the best car. And the one with the cars was saying, well, I'm not going to let you choose the best car. I want this car. They all fought. There was, of course, one car they all wanted. And so they all fought over that. Then the one with the buildings like, well, I'm not going to let the buildings be put in there unless you let me choose, you know, choose the car. And, of course, the other two, we don't care about the buildings. We just need the track and the car. So the one with the building was upset that he didn't have you know, good leverage power. And they just fought like crazy. And this was Christmas morning for them. So my friend actually had to take this away from them. He took it away. And they didn't have this Christmas present until he actually had to write out rules for them. And the rules were never followed. And within a month or two, the kids never played with this track at all. And it really was the track that my friend wanted for himself. But, you know, this is what we do as, as parents, right? We buy the present that was cool that we wanted as kids. But this is kind of human nature. You can see, like, uh, and we'll talk next week about children because Jesus talks about uh, children in the next passage. But you can see, it, and children are kind of like, adults that are unfiltered when you when you watch children if you ever teach children or you're around them they they have the same emotions the same uh, way of dealing with things as we do as adults it's just they have no filters we've learned as adults that we can't just have a temper tantrum because it's socially unacceptable though there are still some adults that do that sort of thing and uh, and we know that we're not supposed to be you know selfish because we're taught that but children just have all the same emotions we do as adults it's just without filters and as adults, when we begin to do these things, like when we begin to act selfishly or we begin to try and manipulate things, it can get ugly and even in our faith. For example, God gave the Hebrews the Sabbath, but instead of enjoying the Sabbath, because that is what it's meant for. Did you realize that the Sabbath is meant for you to enjoy? It's not meant for you to endure. It's meant for you to enjoy. But instead of enjoying it, they made a bunch of rules around it and they just sucked the joy right out of it. And this is what we do as humans. This isn't just them. God gave the Hebrews the temple. Instead of being a place to celebrate, it became a place to extort and to exercise authority and rule over each other. And we'd like to say that the church is different, but the truth is, after Christ, the church followed the same pattern. As a result, there's a very upset chicken. That doesn't make a lot of sense in the slide, but I was looking for someone upset. Because if you look at the church after a few hundred years, after, after it begins to get established, the church pretty much, the Christian church pretty much is, uh, mirror imaged the Old Testament uh, system. Instead of a high priest, they established a pope. Instead of a temple, they established uh, cathedrals. And the cathedrals all had these relics. And what a relic is, is some kind of item that is closely associated with the life of Jesus Christ. And the idea behind the relics is the closer this relic is associated to the life of Christ, the higher prestige the cathedral has. For example, Cologne claims, and I've told you this many times before, to have the bones of the three wise men. And the problem is with that there's no way they have the bones of the three wise men. They, they weren't buried in Jerusalem. We have no idea where they came from. We have no idea where they went. And we have no idea how many they were. There's no scripture that says there was only three. There were three gifts. That doesn't mean there was only three wise men. 
but they claim they have that, and you can go, and, and, and that's their relic. That's the relic of the church, of the cathedral in Cologne. And the reason why cathedrals wanted these relics, why did cities want cathedrals that have a relic? Because it was a tourism business. People, but they called it pilgrimage. They still call it pilgrimage. People would go to the city and visit the cathedral with the relic that had like the finger bone of St. Peter, and there is actually a cathedral that claims to have a knuckle bone of St. Peter, People would go there, and they would, they would give money to the cathedral. It would be a business opportunity for the, for the town. And so that's why they wanted to have these places. And Martin Luther, the great German reformer, one time made a comment that said, if all these things, all these relics are real, then each of the apostles must have had about 25 fingers each, and the cross must have been, you know, 30 meters high because all the little pieces of the cross that people claim is a piece of the true cross added together is enormous. But it was really about money, and it still is about money. And over the years, even though we're a people under grace, we have a tendency to make these laws that people have to live under. And soon that joy of the communal relationship with God, the community of Christ, gets strangled because we're, we're focusing on each other instead of focusing on Christ. We're focusing on whether or not everyone's following the rules as we see them instead of Christ. And it's very difficult. In fact, even in the, in the old days... There's so much acrimony between uh, the, the church and just other, other rulers because the, the pope had the, had the ability to excommunicate someone. So if a king didn't do something they wanted, the pope would say, I'm excommunicating you, which means you're going to hell. And there, there, are, there are events in history where kings would travel all the way back to the Vatican to ask for forgiveness because they were afraid that they were going to be thrown into hell because the pope could excommunicate them. The joy was gone. And so the backlash of this, which you see after the Reformation, and you see it very much in Western culture, is the emphasis became on your personal relationship with Christ, just you and Jesus. But the problem with that is this pendulum swings so far over, then you have people saying, well, I don't need the church. I don't need the community of Christ. I just have my relationship with God. And that's also going too far, because in the Scripture, you have this personal relationship with God, without a doubt, but you also have a relationship with the people of God the community of God. And so we have to always be working toward that balance. And the Sabbath is the same way. The Sabbath is something to be enjoyed, not endured. How many people do you think, I, I think a lot of people go to church because they're going to endure going to the service. Not necessarily ABCD, but there may be some of that here. But they go because they think, okay, I'm going to endure the misery of going through to a church service because that'll make God happy. And if I just kind of check that box, I've made God happy, then, you know, when I die, hopefully he remembers, I sat through your boring church services, so you need to let me into heaven. And that's not what church is supposed to be at all. Church is supposed to be a place where we can come together and we celebrate God. We have these things we call the five C's at IBCD, the purposes of the church, and one of them is to celebrate. We're to celebrate God. One time I had a person you know, come up, and they were upset with me because it was a, a sermon that, that just kind of lent itself to be funny and people were laughing. And this person said, you're taking the reverence out of the church by ha having people laugh during the sermon. And I was like, wow, this isn't the place for you because if you're going to get upset with people actually enjoying their time in the presence of God, then you need to go somewhere else because we want people to enjoy having the presence of God. We want people. I didn't say that to him, by the way. I never tell people to go somewhere else. I just kind of went, oh, that's the way it goes. That's the way we are. 
And uh, we'd love to have you and be part of that. And they never were. They left and never came back. But the idea in their head was, you must be solemn. Put on your church face. Take that smile away. Be solemn. Because this is church. And we're not supposed to have any fun. And the way we celebrate is that we celebrate by being statues. Don't move at all. There's a, there's a joke in the U.S. they call the, the people who are saved the frozen chosen. You know, they're, they're chosen by God and they're just frozen. They just sit there. Because we don't believe we should have fun, but we should. The Sabbath is to be enjoyed. You should enjoy the Sabbath. You should enjoy the day. Enjoy the time together. And I'm, I'm thankful that at IBCD, we do seem to enjoy one another. And that's good. And baptism is the same way. Baptism, which we're going to be having a baptism after the 1115 service today, it's not just some obligation that one should reluctantly carry out in order to be saved. They're like, oh, i got to be saved, so I'm going to go get wet in front of people. That's not what baptism's about. Baptism isn't about just kind of crawling in there reluctantly, you know, to, to get into the waters and, and feel all embarrassed. and It's to be a celebration. When I was a young believer, I was so thrilled to follow Jesus that if they had said, you need to jump into the baptismal waters every Sunday, I would have been the first one there jumping in. Because I was joyful in my relationship with God. I had this attitude of zeal, and, and, and I wanted to, I couldn't help but express it. I was telling someone the other day that I, 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 when I was a young believer and Cindy was, uh, just met me, man, I was like a walking billboard for Jesus. I had my Jesus t-shirts and my Jesus pins and my Jesus, I was like, uh, uh, I was like an advertisement for Jesus. I was so thrilled just to be in Christ. And so this is one reason why I have a hard time understanding people's resistance to the idea of being baptized. And I figure if I have to convince you to be baptized, if I have to like try and somehow talk you into it or manipulate you into it, then you're not ready to be baptized. You know? And giving's the same way. The expectation of the church isn't to just force a certain percentage to, get, to give to the church as a law, but it's to be an expression of joy. And if you can't give with joy, then don't give. Because we don't, we don't want folks to feel manipulated into giving. And we don't give as a tax. You don't pay church tax to this church. The church stoya doesn't, doesn't affect IBCD. But if you want the doors to stay open, if you want the church to continue to exist, if you're getting anything out of the church, and if you want others to be able to receive something from the church, then the simple reality is we have bills to pay. And that's why we ask people to give. It's not, we don't try to over-spiritualize it. It just is what it is. And this Corinthians passage talks about it. You know, he says uh, at the, the last sentence there, each man should give as they've decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Because that's not what the church is about. That's not what the Sabbath is about. And that's not even what giving's about. For God loves a cheerful giver. So the point of all this is that everything we have as a church is already Christ's. It's His. This building is His. And also what you have as an individual, if you are a believer, everything you have is Christ's. And God is remarkably open about saying, everything you have is, comes from me. But you can do with it what you want. You can choose to attend a, a church service. You can choose to give. But if you can't do these things with joy, then God's like, then just don't. Wait until your heart is in a place where you can do this with joy. And when you can do it with joy, you'll find that there is a, it's a hard-to-explain kind of 
almost relief in being able to, to follow God with happiness and even do these things which are, form a sense of discipline and relationship in your relationship with God. But if you can't do it with joy, then don't. And that's basically what Jesus is saying, too, about this, you know, this tax that Peter's talking about. Jesus is saying, look, Peter, I don't have to pay the tax. I own the temple. This is mine. And today, Jesus would be able to say to them, like, this is mine. If you want to follow me with joy, then do so. If you can't follow me with joy, then you need to reinvestigate why it is you're in a relationship with Christ. If you're following Jesus just out of fear, if you're following Jesus out of a sense of fire insurance, if you're following Jesus thinking that somehow you're going to make enough points in order to gain some additional level or a bigger mansion in heaven, then your thinking's wrong. Because it's meant to be joy. If we love Christ, we will trust Christ. If we trust Christ, we will follow Christ. You know, this passage here sometimes seems manipulative. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Then my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Sometimes you can look at this from a kind of a cynical worldview and say, Jesus is being manipulative here. He's saying, well, if you really love me, you'll do what I say. You know, I've heard parents do this with their kids. Their kids are doing something, and the parents will say, well, if you love me, you'll clean your room. You know, that's manipulative, you know that? Or if you love me, you'll feed the dog, or whatever it is. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying if we love him, then we'll trust him. And if you trust him, then you'll follow him. And that becomes keeping his commands, the commandment to go into all nations and make disciples. And how do you do that? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I've commanded you. Another commandment of Jesus, the new commandment I give you, what? Love one another as I have loved you. Not how you love yourself. That was the Old Testament. Jesus said that fulfilled the, the, teachers, the, the teachings of the law and the scribes. But his new teaching, he says, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you should love one another. So Jesus says, follow me in all these things. By this, the world will know you're my disciples if you love one another. So everything that we do, every part of worship, and worship is more than the singing, by the way. We have a tendency to say the singing part of the service is worship. The whole thing is worship. This is worship. The proclamation of his word. Giving is worship. Prayer is worship. Singing definitely is also part of worship. But everything we do in worship is to do, be done in a sense of relationship with Christ. Loving him, trusting him, following him. And I can tell you from personal experience that if you will love and trust Jesus and follow him, even in places where it becomes a stretch, like when Cindy and I were young and we were married and we had no money hardly at all, but we always tithed. And I can tell you, I have never had a time in my life where God, where I have not been able to pay my bills. I've never had a time in my life where I had to forego, you know, I went into a place of famine because I had no money, obviously. I had no, I've never had an issue. Because there's always been this joyful, just part of our life, which I'm thankful that, you know, Cindy's of the same mindset that I've never had to fight with her over giving. In fact, she's more generous than I am. But there's joy in that. I remember when I first became a believer, church changed. Because I did go to church as a little kid because my, my parents dragged me, little kid, up through pretty much high school. They dragged me, they sat me there, and I just kind of went, 
And then I became a believer, and I couldn't get enough of it. I was joyfully worshiping. I had, we had a tremendous pastor when I first became a believer, and everything he said was like gold falling from the sky. I was just like enthralled with it. Reading the Bible. Have you ever tried? Do you, if some of you, did you ever try reading the Bible when you, were non, when you were a non-believer? Some of you? Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. I did. I thought one day, I'm going to read the Bible before I was a believer. It was like reading the dictionary. I could only get about halfway through a single chapter, and I was like, oh. I had no idea what it was saying. And then you've heard the story, probably some if you've been around for a while. When I became a believer, I could not get enough of the Bible. In fact, I almost flunked out of university because all I wanted to do was read the Bible. In the, in the point scale, you know, I kind of blew off classes. Like in Germany, one's the best and five is the worst. I got like a seven, you know, because all I wanted to do was read the Bible. Now, I recovered, just in case you're wondering. And, uh, and I did graduate from university. But I was... The, the consuming joy of actually being in relationship with Christ made all these things that I used to look at as an obligation as things of incredible joy. And I want to close with that as a reminder to you. Wherever you're at in your life, our faith is not, our faith is not all that complicated when it comes to following Christ. Christ died for your sins, rose from the grave. He became sin for you so that you could receive his righteousness and you follow him. It's simple, but it's not simplistic. It's deep, but it's still accessible. But I want to ask you, just where you're at, where is your joy? Do you have joy? Do you come with the expectation of worship with joyfulness? Do you celebrate the Sabbath? If, and you know, The Sabbath isn't a particular day in the New Testament. It's whatever that time that, that, that works for you. That's why it's okay that we worship on Sunday, even though the Hebrews and the Jews used to worship on Saturday. It's all good. But the point is, do you come with joy? Do you have joy in your faith anymore? Do you, have that exp- do you live out of that joy? Or do you live out of trying to make sure you're keeping the rules? We're going to be having, like I said, these baptisms today. But the point of people being baptized is that joyful outward expression of what Christ has done to their lives inwardly. It's not about following a rule. It is, there is a sense of obedience to it. But obedience and joyfulness is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. Because you know, it gives you that sense of freedom that you're where God wants you. So I want to just kind of close and encourage you. If you're struggling with joy right now, if you're struggling with, you know, when you hear, ah, Sunday's coming, I got to roll out of bed, ugh. Then ask yourself, where are you at? I have to ask myself that sometimes. And when it comes to giving, if you're like, oh, here he goes again, well, ask yourself, why? Why are you feeling here he goes again? And if it comes to this places of, you know, how we express community together, I understand that some folks are introverts, some folks are extroverts, some people like people, some people, you know, have to, have to learn to love people. And I, I understand that because I'm an introvert myself. But there's joy in the journey of Jesus. He wants you to have joy. So if you're not in a place of joy, don't just sit there in your place of misery. Seek the Lord and ask, where, do I need, what, where am I out of step? Where is my joy? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word and thank you for this opportunity you give us to worship. And you know, we think about our brothers and sisters around the world 
like the, the ones we prayed for today in Iran. You know, just something as simple as this gathering that we're experiencing this morning is, a, is, is illegal in many countries. And not only is the gathering illegal, but those who are in positions such as mine or, or people who are involved in a church can face jail time, real jail time. And our spiritual ancestors, uh, they died for the right to express their, their faith through believers' baptism. And yet, Lord, so many times we, we look at things and think, ah, this is just a burden. I pray you would help, first of all, you'd forgive us for the attitudes where we take this for granted, so much for granted, that we even begin to uh, hold it in a little bit of contempt at times. And may we be joyful for the gift that you've given us of freedom to worship. May we be joyful in the gift that you've given us to, to have enough income that we can actually give out of that income, those of us who have that. That we can rejoice in the fact that we can openly share our faith. And if people in society don't like it, that's fine, but we can still openly share our faith. And may we take joy in this. And may, may we take joy in the community that we have. Take joy in one another in the differences that we have, but the common unity that we also have in Christ. And may we be a people who people see the joy in our lives. They see that there's something special about what we have in our lives, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. And may they be drawn to you, the you that is expressed in our lives. And we thank you and we praise you for all that you have done. And we thank you that as our God, you're not a God about trying to keep us just in line. You're a God that wants us to know you and know what it means to be in a place of true love and hope forever. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.